Hello there and welcome. I'm Cleanan Ianlun, producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. Irish Poetry Since Kavna was a series of Thomas Davis lectures first broadcast on RT Radio in 1993. It considers Irish poetry in English and in Irish between the 1950s and the early 1990s from the point of view of A Free Field and No Favour, a series consultant editor, poet Theo Dorgan, wrote in the introduction to the book of the series. Here is Yvonne Boland with her lecture, Born in the Fifties, Irish Poets of the Global Village. It's hard to put a frame on a poetic generation. What starts as a frame can too often end up as a hook or a label. The generation of poets, for example, who rode right through the 1840s in Ireland were, in a certain sense, written up and written off at the same time by Samuel Ferguson when he traced their rise and fall to the death of the man for whom this series of lectures is named. Thomas Davis went to an early grave in 1845. Young salmon of the flood tide of freedom, Ferguson wrote, that swells round Erin's shore, Thou wilt leap against their loud, oppressive torrents of bigotry and hate no more. The frame is larger now, and the context is more complicated, but the conclusions may be no more accurate. I am talking tonight about the generation of poets born in Ireland in the 1950s. They are still making their world and their work. Indeed, there are so many names and so many poems that it's hard to do them justice and especially hard to include all of them, and I may well have omitted or overlooked some. They are different from one another and from the poets before them, and yet a few generalizations can nevertheless be attempted. It can't have been easy for these Irish poets born in the 50s to come to poetry in a changed world, and not just a changed outward environment, but a world where there were odd and abrasive disjunctions between the Irish reality and the Irish poem. Outside, in the newly constituted Republic, as the decade of their birth drew to its close, there were hints of change. A different economy, increased travel, the unmistakable sound of overseas music, the relentless approach of fast food, fast money and fast changes on the skyline. Inside the Irish poem, not much of this was reflected. Despite the disruptive and brave dissonances of Thomas Kinsella's first two books, it remained a sheltered space, that poem. Radicalised by Patrick Kavanagh in its relation to the Irish past, certainly, but firmly shut against the Irish future. Despite Yeats's later poems, with their attack, their grace, their highly charged relation between argument and image, modernism had left little enough impression on the Irish lyric. All poems in their time make a fragile, important negotiation between the inner and the outer world. The poets born in these 1950s in Ireland, men and women and members of a changing society, are particularly worth studying for the negotiations they made and make between inner and outward realities. As a group, they remain diverse and differently gifted and hard to pin down and still evolving anyway. And there are other ways to discuss them. But this is the frame I intend to use, simply because the negotiations they made are so different and were so loaded from the start with problems of text and context. And anyway, the negotiations can themselves be volatile. In American poetry of the post-war period, it's interesting to speculate 
why poets like Mark Strand and Charles Simic and W.S. Merwin turned so adamantly to surrealism. Was it a way of dealing with the unfinished business of modernism? Or is it a strategy that suits a poet at a time when the outward reality may seem too ominous for the fragile coherence of the inner one? Two poets born in this country in the 50s, Maeve McGuckian and Paul Muldoon, show a bleak and brilliant sense of play in their poems, which at times comes close to that surrealism. In the offbeat sonnet, The Right Arm, from his 1983 volume, Kroof, for instance, Paul Muldoon makes an association between entrapments of a language and a limb and makes a play for their interrelation, which comes close to the grotesquerie and insight of surrealism. The central stanza of Maeve McGuckian's poem, on the other hand, The Flitting, makes a bold and eloquent portrait of a woman, an image that is in the poem itself from a portrait, but widens out to include surprises of language and association, which are usually unacknowledged opportunities in the Irish poem. She seems a garden escape in her unconscious solidarity with darkness, clove-scented as an orchid, taking 15 years to bloom and turning clockwise as the honeysuckle. Who knows what importance she attaches to the hours? Unfinished business, it is the subtext of every poetic generation. For these poets, there are some particularly difficult pieces of it. Take the regional, for example. In poetry, the regional is often a code word for the anti-authoritarian, exploring identities of place and margin against the set texts of canon and nation. Three poets born in this decade, Tom McCarthy and Theo Dorgan and Sean Dunn, have maintained an anti-authoritarian tone in their poems, and it's no surprise that they come from one of the most vigorous post-war centres, the city of Cork. Theo Dorgan is a poet who inflects the changes around him and has also been a particularly gifted and progressive poetry administrator. His poetry, he has published three volumes, Slow Air, A Moscow Quartet, and the significantly titled The Ordinary House of Love, breaks with elite patterns and can strike out wonderfully into the private, the erotic, the confirmation of dailiness. He can write these lines. The skylight faced with frost, our bodies interlaced in sleep, and the world long lost. The private radicalism of the erotic and a poet like Theodorgan are different in Sean Dunn. He has written Against the Storm and The Sheltered Nest, as well as the eloquent book My Father's House, and he can use a line like, old pain subsides and wounds are healed. But the quality of anti-authoritarianism persists in a poet like Dermot Bulger, who showed it in Raven Arts as a publisher and who is able to eloquently upstage the old fixities of the lament for Art O'Leary in a fine translation of it. He has published The Habit of Flesh and No Waiting America and Internal Exiles. And his tones are somewhat echoed in the bleakness of Tony Curtis, who brings the importance of exile into poetry in his line, In our kitchen, someone was always leaving home. Now back to Cork and Thomas McCarthy, who wrote in his early books about the shock and disaffection of the New Republic. In his 1984 volume, The Non-Aligned Storyteller, he touches on the inheritance of thought and attitude, which inflects both future and past and both canon and identity. My father, we've been there too long before in the land of anger, 
land of fear, the anger that has overtaken you has touched me too. In some senses, Thomas McCarthy is one of the boldest political poets this generation has produced. In his 1978 volume, The First Convention, he explored the claustrophobia and stasis of a time. What I remember, he writes there, is one decade of darkness, a mind-stifling boredom. And this is echoed in a poem called Thurlis, after Zabinu Herbert, by Dennis O'Driscoll, who writes in it, A childhood too boring for words is lost without a fragment in that town. The eloquence of McCarthy's lines and O'Driscoll's hint at what is a recognisable project in this generation of poets, the de-romanticising of place and a consequent restatement of the Irish pastoral, often with a clear pessimism. A poet like Gabriel Fitzmaurice can write darkly of a rural inheritance in poems like Derelicts and Epitaph. A poet like Fred Johnston, who does the same in his poem Heartlands, also puts it well. And in a sense, these poets are not just restating place, they are also, by restating it, dealing with problems of authority. And it is problems of authority which make the negotiations between an inner and outer world tense and fresh and interesting in the work of the male poets of this generation. It's a negotiation not just with the past, but with styles of inherited writing. While a poet like Greg Donante may show a tendency in his 1986 volume, Cast in the Fire, towards American forms and tones, most Irish poets deal with the piecework of the past they have inherited from their own poetic forebears. They struggle, in this generation, as in mine, with the difficult pastoral and the incomplete politicization. We did not choose this patrimony, sir, and are dismayed by the inheritance, writes Aidan Carl Matthews bleakly and wittily of Yeats, and adds, the more so since you died intestate. Aidan Carl Matthews has made a career in fiction also, but his early volume, Minding Ruth, had a graceful and interior tone, a sort of private alienation combined with a daring public speculation, as in the title poem of the volume. And the inheritance Matthews reproaches Yeats about can also be bleak and private, as it was for Larkin. But the past, the canon, the tradition is not merely a source of restriction. It is also possible to see how poets such as Kavanagh and Magnese and Clark and Kinsella have given permissions to poets such as Peter Fallon to explore the paralysis of history against an interesting pastoral, as in winter work, where he writes of friends who wait for change as if history happens to others elsewhere. Or indeed to Harry Clifton, who writes in the title poem of his 1988 volume, The Liberal Cage, but in anger alone will we find the key that lets us out. Or indeed to Jared Smith, who writes of Magan, pity him poor poet, with a head full of words that rhyme. Or for that matter, Matthew Sweeney, who plays with contradictions in his 1989 volume, Blue Shoes, with its title poem and haunting line, All the Women, it seems, Wore Blue Shoes. And Sebastian Barry, with his eloquently named 1985 volume, The Rhetorical Town, where he writes in the poem The Tree Alphabet, Home will be where the trees are the drawings and still the songs, but changed. And these shifts and displacements can be seen as well in a poet like Philip Casey, whose volume The Year of the Knife, poems 1980 and 1990, was recently published in the year 1991. I want to come back now to a point I made at the start about the fact that changes outside in a society, in a social or political climate, are not necessarily reflected inside a poem. It's an important point. 
A poem changes slowly, infinitesimally. It takes its time to show up the small erosions, the important abrasions of time and innovation. And this is true even in one of the greatest areas of change in Irish poetry, the poetry of women. Doing this lecture, it's impossible not to notice how more widely published, anthologized, and referred to is the poetry of men, until very recently. It's not a question of that poetry by men not being welcome, but it is a question of visibility. The women born in this decade of the 1950s have in fact made huge changes around the Irish poem. I've already mentioned Maeve McGuckian and the beautiful mesh of play and wit and subversive imagery she uses. I can now mention Paula Meehan, who in her third book of poetry, The Man Who Was Marked by Winter, showed that she could inscribe the life she lived on the poems she wrote. In Buying Winkles, she writes, I bear the newspaper twists, bulging fat with winkles, proudly home like torches. In other poems, she makes a further exciting mix of lyricism and ordinariness, and her voice is one of the strongest, most musical and assured presences in this generation. Poets like Paula Meehan and Maeve McGuckian show up a new energy in Irish poetry. They also make it important to state that the emergence of women's poetry here and its importance in a wider context is not a matter of gender in an isolated sense, nor should it be. Feminism has enormous importance as an ethic and almost no value as an aesthetic. The issue of women's poetry in Ireland contains elements of justice and questions about exclusionary tactics. But the main question it raises is what is the Irish poem in this generation? How has it changed? How do these new voices around it and new inscriptions within it shift its balance? It's certainly true that the Irish poem of the past had too many energies and figures from Irish nationalism mediated into it. That's why Patrick Kavanagh said with such impatience, when I came to Dublin, these are his words, the Irish literary affair was still booming. And he writes onward, it was the notion that Dublin was a literary metropolis and Ireland, as invented and patented by Yeats, Lady Gregory and Singh, a spiritual entity. It was full of writers and poets, and I'm afraid I thought their work had the Irish quality. The Irish quality. Among these unwelcome mediations was an image of the woman which crept into the Irish poem through the 19th century and well into the 20th which glamorized her passivity and therefore, and this in a way is the important part of the equation, by oblique reference it glamorized the poet's activity. This active passive object-subject fixity made the Irish poem in that aspect an act of power which was very questionable. And often this image, this objectification of the woman, was double exposed over the image of Ireland itself. These are elusive matters, not easy to pin down and no more easy to prove. Kathleen Nihulahorn turns up in the poetry of Yeats and Dark Rosaline in the poems of Mangan. And these are fictive anachronisms which can be dismissed now. But the imaginative figure they mark is more intense and less easily eradicated. It represents a powerful and secret meeting between a sexual trope and an historical assertion, a fusion of dominance and powerlessness, which is not easily resisted in the poetry of a defeated nation. The occasion for all this may be very well passed, but in subtle ways that fusion of the national and feminine persisted, made the interior of the Irish poem less hospitable to the woman poet who had to move into it. I think this has been stressful for Irish poetry in general. Irish women poets, in a sense, are an image file of the Irish poem come to life. 
They are objects of the Irish poem who have walked out of it, only to write it and reinvent it. What makes their work exciting is less a matter of gender and politic than the fact that they can reperceive the old subject and object relation in the contemporary Irish poem. This is what Rita Ann Higgins seeks to do in the daring and subversive poems she writes. Her first volume was called The Goddess on the Merview Bus, published in 1986, and her second called Witch in the Buses. Her most recent is called Philomena's Revenge. In poems like Mona and Poetry Doesn't Pay and The Deserter, she makes important subtle revisions of the public perception of both woman and poet. The balance is also shifted by a poet like Moya Cannon, whose 1990 volume Orr won the Brandon Bean Memorial Prize in 1991, and who can write in unsparing and witty ways about the China buried in her garden, as well as about other experiences. Catherine Phil McCarthy, on the other hand, is a poet who's more concerned with a haunting interior landscape, inflected by childhood, made powerful by a sophisticated memory and an erotic lyric, which has a perspective of considerable power. What all these women are doing is altering the permissions which surround the Irish poem, even as they inscribe a new energy on it. The energies can affect the poem in any way, but the constant bringing to it of private reality refreshes the public one. And this is not to say that there are not radicalisms in the poetry of men in this generation. There are. There are also successful and challenging pastorals, whether it's Patrick Dealey with his poem on cleaning trees or Jerry Daw in Memo to JJ in Sheltering Places, making a menacing and interesting collage of modern bleakness and an historic reference. What would you think of the new estates, he writes, hugging either shore or the telecom mast picking up our fervent calls across the water to a son that's gone or a daughter? Or Peter Sir, for instance, with his assured cadences and his gift for bringing irony into lyric situations, something a whole recent generation in Britain found was not so easy to do. The question, as I've said before, is really not one of gender, although some of the most contested arguments about Irish poetry recently, notably in the field day debates, have had gender as their occasion. The real question is who sets the agenda for the Irish poem, a phrase used by Theo Dorgan and a question asked by him at the Abbey Theatre last year when he spoke about Irish women poets setting the agenda for the Irish poem at the moment. The truth is no one can set an agenda who doesn't have a sense of the previous one. And the previous agenda for the Irish poem was one of a fixed relation between subject and object. And what does that result in? It results to start with and to finish with, or it can at its least successful, with a rigid concept of the authority of the poet. I must be getting old, writes the Belfast poet Robert Johnston in his poem Déjà Vu for I begin to understand my father's reasons. If women poets are less disposed to understand those reasons, I think that can only be a good thing. In the poem written by women at the moment, the authority of the poet is offset and challenged by the necessities of new visions of dailiness and experience and the awareness of a language which needs to be reclaimed and repossessed and the sense of an object in the poem which needs to be restated. Mary O'Malley, 
has written one volume called A Consideration of Silk and has another one about to come out. These lines are from her fine speculation on language in her poem The Shape of Saying. No softness, no sorrow, no sweet lullabies until we took it by the neck and shook it. It may well be that a poet at best is, to borrow Tom McCarthy's eloquent title, a non-aligned storyteller. But that's only part of it. The history of poetry is also partisan and powerful. A poet like Mary Dorsey, in her two important collections, Kindlings and Moving into the Space Cleared by Our Mothers, takes an unsparing and musical perspective on the love between women, but also, by inference, on the question of authority and inheritance, and therefore on the woman's identity within a society and how it shadows and inflects the very idea of the poet. In her poem Deliberately Personal, from moving into the space cleared by our mothers, she finishes the poem by asking, And who are you come to that? All of you out there, out in the spotlight, out for a night's entertainment, smiles upturned so politely, asking me why I have to be so raw, so deliberately personal. And there can be shifts in tone as well, which are interesting and important, as have been undertaken by Claire O'Connor, who had published When You Need Them with Salmon, and Julio Callahan, who expands on the demotic with some American improvisations in her books, Edible Anecdotes and What's What. And Joe Slate captures an erotic economy in her poem When Our Heads Bend in her 1989 volume, published with Salmon, called In Fields I Hear Them Sing. Mary O'Donnell, on the other hand, has developed adventurous tones and takes initiatives of language to make her poems rehearse their themes of isolation and inwardness. In her recent book of poetry, Spider-Woman's Third Avenue Rhapsody, she writes, I am singular as he is, and so alone. I think it's an important question, that question of whether there is a specific way in which Irish women have added to the Irish poem. I personally have no doubt that there is a specific way they've added to it above all by their insistence on inscribing the lives they live, their ideas, their experiences, their obstinate revisitings of routine and feeling, on the poem they write. They have begun to shift old fixities in the Irish poem, and that in itself can only be good, not as narrow advantage, but for Irish poetry in general. There are really too many names here, and it has given a feel of litany to what should be more exact reference. In the coming years, of course, these names of poets will thin out, and this has already happened in my generation of poets, and the landscape of poetry in Ireland for the poets of this generation will be both sparser and clearer. But even as it is, there are good and bad things in this generation of poetry which can be discerned. The good thing is the sheer numbers, the vivacity and the determination of these poets. The numbers are not themselves an inconsiderable thing. They show the determination of a community of poets to continue a difficult craft and an even more difficult life. But the positive is hard to put in words. It always is about poets. There is a sort of bravery and insouciance and irreverence to tradition and weightiness, 
which gives a lift and direction and bravery to the best poetry of this generation, which is truly striking and endearing. The negative, on the other hand, is much more elusive, and in a sense it's hard to give. There isn't an Irish poet of any generation who doesn't remember the struggles of being mid-course in a poetic career, the slippery path behind and the steep one ahead, and who needs criticism at that point. But that's a rhetorical question. It is owed to these poets of the 50s to try to say the negative and to be unapologetic about it as well. There is plenty of vision in the Irish poetry of this generation, but precious little experiment, with the outstanding exception of the poets deploying surrealism in narrative and lyric. But they are exceptions. The commonly used line in many of these poems and in the poems you pick up in magazines or stand reading in bookshops, is a line that has too much automatic steering on it. It's usually a truncated modernist half-line, slightly dissonant, with the voice driven far too far against it. In plain words, there's too much of a so-what feel about many Irish lyric poems in this time frame. But the slackness doesn't necessarily come just from within the poem. In his celebrated note on his fishing story, Big Two-Hearted River, Ernest Hemingway rehearsed his argument as to whether he would make the hero in the narrative plainly a survivor of the First World War. In the end, he decided not. What he actually decided was that the details of the story itself, the glossy fishing bait and the smell of sunshine, would tell the story for him. And that in some sense, he also decided, the very exclusion of the fact that the hero was back from war would be part of the way these details would infer the suffering and the survival of the hero, both. Inference was what he wanted, and inference was what he got, because of his own bold balancing of what was put into the story as against what was left out. I certainly think the poets of this generation show a skilled, fresh and brave sense, both men and women, of what to put into the poem. I don't, however, have a stronger sense that there is a perception of what is outside the poem, a perception which distinguished generations such as Kavanagh's, where there was a powerful presentiment that the energies of the Ireland within the poem came from the Ireland excluded from the poem that the visible place was informed by the visible one and the visible life by the invisible one, waiting at its edges, ominously touching its borders. And this was true again of the wonderful generation of Northern Irish poets, represented by Seamus Heaney and Derek Mahan, whose best poems are masterly and scrupulous realignments of the included against the excluded. And then again, if this generation has to take that into consideration, it's only fair to remember and to be reminded that these are poets born in the 50s in Ireland, hard at work, their work still to be completed, and still at work counting the miles and the promises. That was Yvonne Boland with her lecture, Born in the 50s, Irish Poets of the Global Village, from the 1993 RT Thomas Davis Lecture Series, Irish Poetry Since Kavanagh. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts.
from me, producer Cleanna Nianlun. Thank you for listening. Thank you.